My name is William Cooper. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no limits on the insanity we may hear tonight. Because this is Encounter 501. Behold, a Bill Cooper. Just a quick note before we begin... This is the first episode that has had to be almost entirely reconstructed, redone, re-recorded, re-edited, and cobbled together from the best bits of whatever we could come up with. The first few edits just did not work, and so this is most likely the most difficult episode we've ever done here on The Saucer Life, and I wish I could explain why that might be, but I just can't. We're starting our 90s Strike Back series with this episode, and I've got to say that I'm both excited and a little anxious about this run. Excited because these are some of the most wild yet relevant stories we can possibly cover. Anxious because so much has been said about some of these topics, and I worry that finding fresh angles for something like the X-Files or underground bases might be a little difficult. It's also a little self-indulgent, because this, more than any other, is the era I remember, and the era that shaped my perceptions of the field. But these are some things we need to cover, and Bill Cooper is a good place to start. Milton William Cooper, or Bill Cooper, was a key figure in the UFO and conspiracy communities from the late 1980s until his death in November 2001. A critical aspect of his significance was the manner in which his ideas blended the worlds of UFO belief, global conspiracy, and fears of a powerful, ancient secret society, or societies, all into one big, crazy stew. In this encounter, we're going to explore his work and the twists and turns that took Bill away from the saucer life and towards a life of anti-government extremism. Cooper emerged into the UFO scene in the 1980s, presenting himself as a whistleblower and alleging that he had seen secret information that verified a number of political and extraterrestrial conspiracy theories. Cooper had claimed that he'd seen this information about extraterrestrial contact, the JFK assassination, and a whole bunch of other stuff as a U.S. Navy enlisted man in the early 1970s. Here's a clip from a video available on YouTube where he explains his background a bit. Links to these full videos are in the show notes, and I want to make very clear that I'm not using anything in this episode that is either made available through his Hour of the Time site at hourofthetime.com, which Cooper ran until his death and has been continued by his comrades. I'm not using any of their stuff. Further, the brief clips you will hear are for review or criticism purposes and thus fall under the legal principle of fair use, and I certainly hope that no one impanels any sort of sovereign citizen grand jury against me. Between the years 1970 and 1973, I served on the intelligence briefing team of the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Pacific Fleet, who at that time was Admiral Bernard Cleary. I was attached to the Office of Naval Intelligence. I had a top secret, Q, sensitive compartmentalized information, security clearance, and actually had access and the need to know almost everything that the Admiral himself, the members of his staff, and many high-level government officials. Well, none of that certainly sounds made up, does it? 
Cooper's first widely distributed document that tied into the UFO and conspiracy scene was entitled The Secret Government, The Origin, Identity, and Purpose of MJ-12. In this, Cooper attempted to put together the pieces of various extraterrestrial-themed conspiracies and presumably make some sort of name for himself. Bill Cooper's The Secret Government took several forms. It was posted to the internet, it would be part of his book later on, and it was a speech that he gave at a number of venues, including the 1989 MUFON Symposium. Now, at some point in the future, that 1989 MUFON Symposium is going to be worthy of a show all on its own, because a whole lot of stuff happened there. Let's take a look at some excerpts from The Secret Government and what Cooper brought to the scene and what he got wrong about the scene. Between January 1947 and December 1952, at least 16 crashed or downed alien craft, 65 alien bodies, and one live alien were recovered. An additional alien craft had exploded and nothing was recovered from that incident. Of these events, 13 occurred within the borders of the United States, not including the craft which disintegrated in the air. Of these 13, one was in Arizona, 11 were in New Mexico, and one was in Nevada. Three occurred in foreign countries. Of those, one was in Norway, and the last two were in Mexico. Sightings of UFOs were so numerous that serious investigation and debunking of each report became impossible utilizing the existing intelligence assets. An alien craft was found on February 13, 1948, on a mesa near Aztec, New Mexico. Another craft was located on March 25, 1948, in White Sands Proving Ground. It was 100 feet in diameter. A total of 17 alien bodies were recovered from those two craft. Of even greater significance was the discovery of a large number of human body parts stored within both of those vehicles. A demon had reared its head, and paranoia quickly took hold of everyone in the know. The secret lid immediately became a top-secret lid and was screwed down tight. The security blanket was even tighter than that imposed upon the Manhattan Project. In the coming years, these events were to become the most closely guarded secrets in the history of the world. There are a couple of interesting things here. First is the fact that he doesn't jump to Roswell as the sort of seminal flying saucer crash that initiated this big cover-up. Rather, he looks to Aztec and another supposed crash in the White Sands. But the details he splits between... Aztec and White Sands, a craft 100 meters in diameter, 17 alien bodies, these are all very much Aztec crash things. And now is not the time to get into the entire 1948 Aztec crash, I'm going to say nonsense. If you look back at Bonus Encounter 1 way back in September of 2017, you'll hear me talk a little bit about Aztec in that talk I gave at the 50th anniversary of the Shag Harbor incident in Nova Scotia, and I'm pretty sure we'll be doing an Aztec episode at some point in the future. So if Cooper jumps to Aztec in 1948, but doesn't talk about Roswell, when does he get to Roswell, and what does he have to say about it? The live alien that had been found wandering in the desert from the 1949 Roswell crash was named EBE. I didn't mess that up. Cooper actually wrote 1949. 
I think he got that a little wrong, since the Roswell crash was in 1947, but thinking Roswell was in 1949 would sort of explain why he decided on Aztec as the seminal incident. Anyway, back to EBE. The name had been suggested by Dr. Vannevar Bush and was short for Extraterrestrial Biological Entity. EBE had a tendency to lie, and for over a year would give only the desired answer to questions asked. Those questions, which would have resulted in an undesirable answer, went unanswered. So, did EBE only answer questions it wanted to answer? Or did he only give answers which he knew the questioners would find desirable? This point is unclear, but I think what Cooper is trying to say is that EBE only answered questions that he wanted to answer because he knew those answers wouldn't disturb the humans asking. But it's really unclear how that's all spelled out. At some point during the second year of captivity, he began to open up. The information derived from EBE was startling, to say the least. This compilation of his revelations became the foundation of what would later be called the Yellow Book. A little behind-the-scenes tidbit. The sequence of words comprising, let me make sure I have this right, compilation, revelation, foundation, was incredibly difficult to actually get out. So... EBE didn't answer questions, then he starts talking, and all of his revelations are put together in the yellow book. Now, the yellow book, uh, that item, that phrase denoting that item full of alien information, would be part of a lot of these late 80s, early 90s sort of revelations. And there are, of course, rumors that it was not an actual book, but an optical disc of some kind. EBE eventually got sick and died, with human medicine being unable to help him, and his death occurred in June of 1952. According to Cooper, the story of the capture and interrogation and subsequent death of EBE was the foundation for the movie E.T., which suggests to me that Cooper never actually saw E.T., so as we get into 1953, Dwight Eisenhower becomes president of the United States. And as Cooper points out, Eisenhower, being an old military man, wanted a well-defined, well-organized staff structure around him. And so it's under Eisenhower that MJ-12, or as Cooper calls it, Majesty-12, would be formed, made up of a number of experts in the fields of politics and diplomacy and science to manage the alien question. Now... Cooper's conception of MJ-12, or Majesty-12 as Cooper called it, was incredibly complex. And the snippets we're going to hear from his, uh, his writing about the secret government are an extremely sort of simplified compilation of everything he believed went into this organization. At the core of Majesty-12 is another group called the Jason Group. The Jason Group is a secret scientific group formed during the Manhattan Project and administered by the MITRE Corporation. The inner core of the Council on Foreign Relations recruits its members from the Skull and Bones and the Scroll and Key Societies of Harvard and Yale. The wise men are key members of the Council on Foreign Relations and also members of a secret order of the Quest known as the Jason Society. 
The group was made up over the years of the top officers and directors of the Council on Foreign Relations, and later the Trilateral Commission. Gordon Dean, George Bush, and Zbigniew Brzezinski were among them. The most important and influential of the wise men were John McCloy, Robert Lovett, Avril Harriman, Charles Bolin, George Kennan, and Dean Acheson. Their policies were to last well into the decade of the 70s. It is significant that President Eisenhower, as well as the first six Majesty Twelve members from the government, were also members of the Council on Foreign Relations. This gave control of the most secret and powerful group in government to a special interest club that was itself controlled by the Illuminati. Here we see some of the beginnings, and we're going to see a lot more of this, of Cooper bringing in what was then some pretty standard political and foreign policy conspiracy thinking into his alien conspiracy thinking. Uh, Majesty 12 wasn't just a group of scientists and politicians that were controlling the government question. It was part of the Illuminati through its connection to the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the Trilateral Commission. Oh, by the way, while we're talking about the Trilateral Commission, here's what Cooper has to say about that in The Secret Government. The Trilateralists existed secretly before 1973. The name of the Trilateral Commission was taken from the alien flag known as the Trilateral Insignia. Of all the many and varied conspiracy theories out there that involved the Trilateral Commission, the idea that they were in fact inspired by an alien flag might be my favorite. Actually, my favorite thing is the idea that aliens had a flag, because why would they? It's a great example of UFO researchers, and especially sort of the more out there UFO conspiracists, projecting absolutely human motivations and methods and means onto these supposed aliens. In this case, all the way to assuming they would have the same sort of political regalia that humans would. MJ-12 itself, thought to be a secret group empowered by the U.S. government to manage the extraterrestrial cover story, originated years earlier in uh, now largely discredited documents that have been leaked to the UFO community through figures such as Bill Moore and Jamie Chandray. This pattern of latching onto and appropriating well-known stories, terms, or concepts will be a common theme in Cooper's UFO career. Cooper's attempts to cohesively bind these different conspiracy theories together would lead to his crucial role as a, as a kind of nexus point, connecting ufology, political conspiracy, and a number of deep historical and esoteric um, sort of conspiracy narratives as well. If you go back and listen to Encounter 201, Will the Real O.H. Krill Please Stand Up? You can hear some excerpts from some of these early Cooper documents. And one thing you'll hear in there, and that I'll repeat here, is that he claimed to have seen documents that amazingly corroborated many of the then-current stories that were appearing in the online UFO scene in the late 80s and into the early 90s, such as what John Lear had talked about, and the Project Grudge Blue Book 13 report that William English, another guy named Bill, uh, had discussed. We'll be talking about Bill English in a few episodes. But Cooper is co-opting information about work that already existed um, and using it to sort of position himself as somebody who not only can verify what all these other guys are saying, but who knew about all these things before any of these people did. So he is simultaneously, you know, backing them up 
and trying to usurp their position in the UFO whistleblower hierarchy. Cooper would continue to produce lengthy documents and post them and, and distribute other materials which claimed, um, which he claimed, rather, that mysterious figures had uploaded to his own BBS. Um, he would explain that he couldn't verify all of this, and if you go back and listen to the Krill episode, that's a good uh, example of that, and you could check that out at saucerlife.com. Eventually, the endorsement of the Krill document would be one of the factors which led to Cooper's exit from the UFO field. But in that early document that would persist as the core of Cooper's writing, the secret government, Cooper presented a political angle to the UFO conspiracy theory that was not entirely present in some of the earlier, uh, some of the earlier saucer-oriented conspiracies, even of that sort of darkly political time of the 1980s. He's adding speculation not only about the origin of the alien visitors, but also spending more time discussing the political aspects of this, this hidden cabal at the heart of the American political system that sought to control all of us. He said that at some point in the near future, the political, social, and cultural situations in the United States would be right, and this secret government would take action. They will suspend the Constitution and declare martial law. The secret alien army of implanted humans and all dissidents, which translates into anyone they choose, will be rounded up and placed in the one-mile-square concentration camps which already exist. Anyone who resists will be taken or killed. This entire operation was rehearsed by the government and military in 1984 under the codename Rex-84A, and it went off without a hitch. When these events have transpired, the secret government and or alien takeover will be complete. Your freedom will never be returned, and you will live in slavery for the remainder of your life. You'd better wake up, and you'd better do it now. Cooper started hedging his bets all the way at the beginning. The secret government and or alien takeover will be complete. He's on the fence. Is it a secret government? Is it an alien takeover? He seems to be wavering even at this point. So we have one of the first and one of the most lasting connections between this different parts of this era, between the political conspiracy theories and the paranoid, paranormal conspiracy theories of the time. Cooper promoted a vision of the government, whether the elected government, the secret government, or elements of each, that had extensive plans for rounding up, imprisoning, and possibly executing millions of Americans deemed to be dangerous. Cooper's prophecies invoked the specter of totalitarian oppression. His connections between the world of UFOs and more prosaic political conspiracy narratives encompassed other topics as well. In 1990, Cooper uploaded to a bulletin board system a collection of writing which would become known as the release of the Cooper material. Cooper claimed that it had been uploaded to his personal network and, quote, was obviously written by someone who has access to the same top secret information to which I also had access, end quote. But he urged readers to use caution for, quote, this information could be true or it could only be partly true. Yeah, that's a great way to protect yourself, to cover yourself in case some of the things turn out to be demonstrably untrue. Well, you know, I said part of it could be disinformation. So this document addressed myriad topics of interest, not only to UFO conspiracy, 
buffs and believers, but also drifted into more exclusively political realms. The coming currency call-in is related to drug money laundering. The ban on assault weapons will soon be extended to every gun. A declaration of martial law with the resulting major security upgrade to deal with the alien crisis will be much easier when these things occur. The drug situation started out as a social experiment back in the 1800s. There was a question of whether people could be controlled by the use of drugs and to what extent. The experiment ran its course and yielded little in terms of the controlling effects that were desired. The side benefit, however, was billions of dollars in profits from the selling of drugs. The drug situation has assisted the funding of the aliens in building their underground civilization. Much of this money has gone into helping them in their efforts to establish bases underground. In exchange, the United States got technology, a promise that the aliens would not go to war with the United States or other countries of the world. Here, we have a panoramic view of the 18... not 1880s, the 1980s and 1990s conspiracy narratives with topics such as an an illicit drug economy being a government plot. But Cooper takes it out of its way more plausible context of money laundering and influencing international politics and places it in the more weird, paranoid setting of social control experimentation and connecting it back to the larger issue of extraterrestrial visitation and collusion between the U.S. government and an alien invasion force. These sorts of connections would be a hallmark of Cooper's writing, blending paranormal and political paranoia and conspiracies so thoroughly that it becomes difficult to determine where one part ends and another begins. Cooper would stick to his ufological guns into 1991, publishing Behold a Pale Horse. The book is partially a compilation of Cooper's internet writings, slightly rewritten, such as this excerpt from The Secret Government that expands on the drug dealing connection and ventures into some other very strange areas. The ruling powers decided that one means of funding the alien-connected and other black projects was to corner the illegal drug market. The English and French had established a historical precedent when they exploited the opium trade in the Far East and used it to fill their coffers and gain a solid foothold in China and Vietnam, respectively. A young, ambitious member of the Council on Foreign Relations was approached. His name is George Bush who at the time was the president and CEO of the offshore division of Zapata Oil, based in Texas. Zapata Oil was experimenting with the new technology of offshore drilling. It was correctly thought that the drugs could be shipped from South America to the offshore platforms by fishing boat to be taken from there to shore by the normal transportation used for supplies and personnel. By this method, no customs or law enforcement agency would subject the cargo to search. George Bush agreed to help and organized the operation in conjunction with the CIA. The plan worked better than anyone had dreamed. It has since expanded worldwide, and there are now many other methods of bringing the illegal drugs into the country. It must always be remembered that George Bush began the sale of drugs to our children. The CIA now controls most of the world's illegal drug markets. The official space program was boosted by President Kennedy in his inaugural address when he mandated that the United States put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Although innocent in its conception, this mandate enabled those in charge to funnel vast amounts of money into black projects and conceal the real space program from the American people. A similar program in the Soviet Union served the same purpose. In fact, a joint alien United States and Soviet Union base existed on the moon at the very moment Kennedy spoke those words. 
On May 22, 1962, a space probe landed on Mars and confirmed the existence of an environment which could support life. Not long afterward, the construction of a colony on the planet Mars began in earnest. Today, I believe a colony exists on Mars populated by specially selected people from different cultures and occupations taken from all over the Earth. A public charade of antagonism between the Soviet Union and the United States has been maintained over all these years in order to fund projects in the name of national defense, when in fact we are the closest of allies. At some point, President Kennedy discovered portions of the truth concerning the drugs and the aliens. He issued an ultimatum in 1963 to Majesty 12. President Kennedy assured them that if they did not clean up the drug problem, he would. He informed Majesty 12 that he intended to reveal the presence of aliens to the American people within the following year and ordered a plan developed to implement his decision. President Kennedy was not a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and knew nothing of Alternative 2 or Alternative 3. Although some researchers claim JFK was a member of the CFR, I can find no legitimate list with his name upon it. Internationally, the operations were supervised by the Bilderberg Elite Committee, known as the Public Committee. In the United States, they were supervised by the Executive Committee of the CFR, and in the Soviet Union by its sister organization. President Kennedy's decision struck fear into the hearts of those in charge. His assassination was ordered by the Policy Committee, and the order was carried out by agents in Dallas. President John F. Kennedy was murdered by the Secret Service agent who drove his car in the motorcade, and the act is plainly visible in the Spruder film. Watch the driver and not Kennedy when you view the film. All of the witnesses who were close enough to the car to see William Greer shoot Kennedy were themselves all murdered within two years of the event. The Warren Commission was a farce, and the Council on Foreign Relations members made up the majority of the panel. They succeeded in snowing the American people. Many other patriots attempted to reveal the alien secret have also been murdered throughout the intervening years. At the present time, over 200 material witnesses or people actually involved with the assassination are dead. The odds against this happening are so high that no one has been able to calculate them. The odds against the first 18 to die within two years of the assassination were calculated at 100,000 trillion to one. You can order a copy of the film by sending $30 plus $4 postage and handling to William Cooper, 19744 Beach Boulevard, Suite 301, Huntington Beach, California, 92648. <sighs> There's a lot going on there. And apologies for the very long uh, excerpt there, but he really didn't give me time to stop. And I will say that was not edited at all. It really did jump from topic to topic that rapidly from the opium war and George Bush being the first person to ever give drugs to our children to the JFK assassination to mentions of alternatives two and three. Alternative three is actually a British April Fool's joke spoof television documentary from the 1970s that has been folded into the UFO and conspiracy narrative over the years and will probably be the subject of a future episode down the road. But one thing we see here are some differences between uh, Cooper's thinking in Behold a Pale Horse and what he talked about in some of his internet postings. We have the connection between the drug trade and the U.S. government and the alien cover-up, 
but the mind control aspects have been subtracted from it. There's no mention of this in the 1800s. People used drugs to try to control minds, but it didn't work, so we just started selling them. No, he grounds it in the very sort of historically appropriate for the topic opium war. So Cooper's discussion of the Kennedy assassination here and his promotion of the assassination film that we saw at the very end there, where you can clearly see driver William Greer turn around and shoot Kennedy, would draw the ire of a man named Lars Hansen, who was one of the researchers who initially investigated the driver shot JFK theory, and from whom, allegedly, Cooper acquired his copy of the Sapruder film that Cooper in turn profited from. Hansen's article, Lear and Loathing in Las Vegas, excoriates Cooper, amusingly describing him as having the investigation skills of a P.T. Barnum, but it mostly concentrates on our buddy John Lear and his connections to the intelligence community, and the possibility of Lear's UFO claims being a tool to distract from darker, more terrestrial conspiracies. But in it, he does point out that, yes, in the seventh-generation copy that Cooper was selling for $30 plus shipping and handling— you could sort of see something move that looked like Greer turning around to shoot Kennedy. However, Hansen, who admitted he had been wrong, uh, said when he saw clearer copies of the Zapruder film, that was obviously not what happened. Cooper stuck to his guns about the driver shooting Kennedy theory. But anyway, Lear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a really good read, so throw that uh, title in your Google machine and take a look at it. Behold a Pale Horse also included uh, sort of photocopies of correspondence that had been sent to Cooper from those who agreed with his ideas or in some way bolstered his claims, such as this letter from someone named Millard. Although it is a small consolation to you, and I realize that you must be in great pain and anguish, it reminded me of that old quotation from Alexander Pope. Whenever a true genius appears, you can always know him by this sign that all the dunces are in confederacy against him. Bill, I just want you to know that at least to me, and to many more who may not be expressing it to you, what you have had the immense courage to say on the Sedona tape and the other places you have spoken certainly has the ring of truth about it. In my opinion, you deserve the highest commendation this country can bestow on a man. Instead, they tried to crucify you. It is also clear that most of the points you made on the Sedona tape have been countered by, for example, the article in People magazine on General Kun Sa, the son of the police officer in Dallas who suddenly claims his father assassinated Kennedy, and George Bush emerging from the economic summit meeting and declaring his sudden conversion to upholding the Constitution. You definitely seem to be doing something right. Perhaps one of the most disturbing aspects of all of this is the lying, spying, disinformation, dirty tricks, ridicule, discrediting, and outright deception perpetrated by agents paid by our own tax money. In my case, a woman entered my life who seemed to be so interested in the same kinds of things, so intelligent, supportive, and delightful that she seemed almost too good to be true. She was. Six months after she walked out on me with no prior warning, the day after my mother died, I found out from a former national security agent that she had said things to him which made him certain that she was a government agent set to find out how much I knew, set me up, and emotionally destroy me. And I'm not altogether sure that this friend didn't have something to do with it. The message was quite clear. They wanted me to know that they could get me in the deepest, most personal, and painful level. May Almighty God repay them in kind so they can find out exactly how it feels. 
It simply amazes me that these little rats have not yet figured out that if they succeed in creating the kind of world in which they seem to intent upon, they're going to reincarnate into it and be on the receiving end of their creation. If you ever get to the Palm Beach area, I would very much enjoy meeting you and talking with you. Very privately. In the meantime, I would like to order a copy of your new book, Behold a Pale Horse. Enclosed is my check for $22, which I believe is the correct amount, and please add me to your mailing list. By the way, did you happen to see the October 30th, 1990 issue of the Weekly World News with the cover story, Alien Captured by U.S. Agents, with lots of photos? What's your opinion? This paper is a sister publication to the National Enquirer, previously owned by the late Generoso Pope, who was said to have been a former CIA agent, if there is such a thing as a former CIA agent. Apparently, Pope hired the most erudite, competent reporters he could find, really a blue-ribbon staff, and 99% of all the information they uncovered and stories they wrote disappeared into the big computer, inaccessible to everyone, including the authors, except Mr. Pope. Pretty slick information gathering. I wish you every success in getting your crucial information to the public, and may God bless you, protect you, and keep you. May the truth come to light. Millard. Millard sounds like a lot of fun. Millard also, as you can see from the letter, is one of those people who was convinced, at least in 1990, that Bill Cooper was exactly what he said he was. A brave, knowledgeable whistleblower trying to end the cover-up about the alien crisis and about every other dark misdoing or bad doing or wrongdoing that the government, the secret government, the aliens, and whoever else might be, uh, might be trying. He was also willing to give Bill Cooper 22 bucks for Behold a Pale Horse. Um, you don't have to do that. Uh, you can find it at um, Amazon for much less if you choose to purchase it. But you might not want to purchase it, because there's some stuff in there that isn't just crazy, it's downright horrible. And the best example of that is the fact that Cooper also included a copy, a photocopy, of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was called in this version the Protocols of the Wise Men of Zion. If you don't know what the Protocols of the Elders of Zion are, um, it was a document which emerged at the end of the 19th century, although its basic sort of concept of a dialogue between Jewish conspirators on their plan to take over the world was much older. Cooper claimed that its supposed revelation of a Jewish plot for global domination was in fact disinformation, designed to throw people off the trail of the real threat. Cooper's explanation is that the protocols were, quote, written intentionally to deceive people. For clear understanding, any reference to Jews should be replaced with Illuminati, end quote. Sure. Whatever, Bill. Cooper and his fans would always claim that the accusations of anti-Semitism made against him were designed to discredit his research. However, he could have made the same argument about the protocols being an Illuminati plot to sow division and to cloud their plans by positing a Jewish conspiracy within the narrative of his own writing rather than including the entire document. Including the protocols was at best, at best, a profoundly boneheaded move. At worst... And more likely, Cooper knew that including the protocols would appeal to a ready-made audience of right-wing conspiracists, an audience not necessarily drawn in by UFO talk. While Behold a Pale Horse offers a precy of Cooper's views in the early 1990s, by that time prominent publications like UFO Magazine were openly denouncing Cooper and his claims. 
Don Ecker of UFO Magazine began to investigate Cooper's claims that he had seen information corroborating the claims of Lear and others while part of a naval intelligence briefing team, as we talked about. In a 1990 issue of the magazine, Cooper presented his conclusions. During this investigation, UFO Magazine has found that much of Cooper's material is entirely fabricated, lifted from others' work, or facts he selected and twisted to support his own story. Several times, Cooper has told those who have disagreed with him or questioned his information, quote, I will crucify you. At which point, will someone allow a demagogue to intimidate him or her into silence? At what point will the truth be the final casualty in a war of words with liars? Some harsh treatment from Don Ecker, who has, still has, from everything I've heard, even recently, absolutely no love for Bill Cooper. So let's take a moment to consider the fact that the UFO field of study in the early 1980s, a field that, taken as a whole, had room and space and time and attention for topics ranging from abductions to underground alien bases to channeled messages from Space Jesus, that this movement had more or less decided that Bill Cooper was just too crazy and or fraudulent to waste his time with. Think about that. As we go through the rest of the series about ufology in the 1990s, and we hear all of these stories and claims and and narratives that twist and turn, remember and keep in mind the fact that Cooper was a bridge too far. If that isn't one of the most condemning things ever, I'm not sure what is. So, as the UFO field moved on, not only from Cooper, but actually, for the most part, from similar figures like John Lear, Cooper segued out of the UFO field, denouncing its major players as disinformation agents, and claiming, in fact, that he saw the very names of those who had criticized him listed as intelligence assets in those fabled 1972 briefing documents. Perfectly reasonable to assume that no matter... What topic was the current subject at hand? Bill Cooper had seen information in the 1972 briefing documents that corroborated whatever his opinion actually was. It's amazing that people saw through it, isn't it? It's so clever. It's such a clever scheme. I'm sorry. I know in the introduction to this podcast, every time I say no snark, I have to be snarky about Bill Cooper because he is so cynical and calculating in the most obvious, unclever ways possible, that it is impossible for me not to be snarky about Bill Cooper. So apologies, I, uh, I, I may go back and, and edit out the no snark section of this episode's introduction. So Cooper leaves the UFO field, and within a couple of years is starting up a shortwave radio broadcast and website. In about 1994, 1995, this starts up. And after a few more years, he emerges with a, a lengthy, a massive, massive, thousands of words long document. And it's this document that's the key for understanding Cooper's theories and point of view in the years after his flying saucer adventures. It's called Majesty 12, all one word. And Cooper states that Majesty 12, all one word, was the name of those top secret documents he saw in 1972. Majesty 12 is an account of how numerous aspects of pop culture, conspiracy culture, religion, mythology, everything, all of it's connected to a shadowy group of elites 
who have existed since the dawn of recorded history, outlining their, quote, plan for the destruction of the United States of America and the formation of a socialist totalitarian world government. End quote. The title referred to the, quote, planned placement of ultimate power in a body of wise men who are destined to rule the world as the disciples of a Messiah frontman. This Messiah will serve as a buffer between the wise men and the sheeple. End quote. Yes, I am pretty sure that the conspiracy theorists slur of sheeple, uh, if it didn't originate with Cooper, certainly was popularized by him. But a lot of this sounds familiar, right? Secret government taking over America, destroying stuff. What had changed from Cooper's previous writings? What changed was that the extraterrestrial invasion angle is absent. And he does a bit of a, of a mea culpa for his earlier alien talk. And, and he sort of comes up with a way to explain why he's no longer part of the UFO scene that uh, avoids the topic of Don Ecker's expose on him. And actually, um, this little little snippet here is, is possibly the only time Cooper ever admitted to being wrong about anything. When I saw Operation Majority while serving in the Navy, I believed the alien threat was real, just like everyone else. It was not until I had performed many years of research that I was able to fully understand exactly what it was that I had seen. It was extremely difficult for me to believe that my government and the United States Navy had used me, especially since I had dedicated my life to government and military service. Most government and military personnel cannot and will not believe such an idea. The plan is real. The extraterrestrial threat is artificial. The threat is presented through the use of secret technology originally developed by the Germans in their secret weapons programs during World War II, by geniuses like Nikola Tesla and many others. Military and government personnel who have access to this material believe it is real. None of them, however, has ever seen any evidence of the existence of any extraterrestrial creature or any advanced technology other than that of human origin. It is not what they see that convinces them it is extraterrestrial in origin, but the manner in which it is presented. It is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to believe that top-secret government or military documentation could be lies. It is trust in government by men and women who have given their lives in its service that keeps this monumental lie alive. All so-called leaks are intentional misinformation projects designed to promote the alien threat scenario while allowing for complete deniability on the part of the government. Next, Cooper would launch into a litany of prominent figures in ufology. Now, what made this difficult to recreate in an audio format is the fact that he would add these sort of parenthetical notes after them, almost like footnotes, in which he revealed who they really worked for. So we've tried to have a little fun with it, and uh, and hopefully it comes across uh, as Cooper intended. Um, actually, this probably isn't anything what Cooper intended to happen to his words, but there you go. The antics of Vicki Ecker, CIA, Donald Francis Ecker III, Duke. William Moore, Jamie Chandere, Stanton T. Friedman, Bruce Maccabee, Office of Naval Intelligence, Barry Taff, Ph.D., Neuropsychiatric Institute of UCLA, worked with recently deceased Dr. Louis Jolin West, Whitley Strieber, Bud Hopkins, CIA, John Lear, CIA, Linda Moulton Howe, Order of the Eastern Star, American Federation of Human Rights, American Co-Masonry, Art Bell, Freemason, Glenn Campbell, 
George Knapp, Freemason, Colonel Philip Corso, a monumental liar, now deceased, Richard Hoagland and his face on Mars, the so-called alien autopsy film, NASA and the Apollo moon missions, the so-called Mars meteorite, which was fraudulently promoted as containing fossil evidence of life on Mars, the War of the Worlds, and many other people and events are projects of this type. Some, very few, of these people are unwitting accomplices in the charade and truly believe in the extraterrestrial threat. Most of those named, and others not named, are active, and with full knowledge, agents of Illuminism or Socialism. The most well-known are active fellow travelers, communist agents of the KGB, the Central Intelligence Agency, or one of the many psychological warfare agencies founded by the Rhodes Roundtable Group, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and the Council on Foreign Relations. So the Illuminati is a, is a pretty varied group, but they share, according to Cooper, a common spirituality. Their religious beliefs encompass the Kabbalah, Luciferian philosophy, and what Cooper calls the worship of the sun. The Illuminati is a threat not only to the United States, but every sovereign nation. So there's an Illuminati, of course, that is also communist, of course, uh, but might be socialist because Cooper doesn't see any difference between the two. Um, he mentions the Kabbalah as being what the, uh, what the bad guys worship, but also they worship the sun. It's weird. And as you heard in that excerpt, he has no trouble um, attempting to connect nearly every credible UFO researcher of the time to this conspiracy. Uh, he does point out that some of them are unwitting, uh, unwitting tools of this conspiracy, but he, he also says that very few of them are actually unwitting. Cooper, in this document later on, advises that anyone who wishes to be more fully cognizant of how badly the Illuminati has penetrated our society should watch the film They Live. Actually, everybody should watch the film They Live. 1989, you've got reptilian people disguised as humans, and you've got Rowdy Roddy Piper as the only guy who can expose the cover-up. It's actually pretty good. David Icke, the British conspiracy theorist, uh, also recommends They Live, and also the V miniseries as the truth. At the highest levels, um, Freemasons, members of the Theosophical Society, the Knights Templar, basically just look through the index of any conspiracy theory book and every group mentioned there. Cooper says they are all the same thing. They're all part of the, the ancient Babylonian Brotherhood. Understanding this philosophy and, and, and the, quote, mystery schools that are at the root of it all is impossible without a, without a complete knowledge of their symbolic language, as Cooper calls it. But Cooper, helpfully, offers a simple summary of, of all of his years of this. Quote, Illuminism is communism. So at the end of all of this, after the aliens and the extraterrestrials and the secret government and, and the society of the Rose Cross and the Knights Templar and the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts and the Freemasons and the Chamber of Commerce and the U.S. Olympic Committee and anybody else you can name. I might have made some of those up in there. What it all comes down is it's the commies. It's the communists. And this was written in 1997. This wasn't something that we see in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s when communism as an ideological threat from the Soviet Union was a geopolitical force. No, this is after that threat had faded. Cooper stays on the communism hobby horse. 
But the thing is, like his flying saucer ideas, Cooper didn't come up with any of this himself. This idea of of an array of secret societies fighting on behalf of the forces of communism, he didn't come up with that. Back in the 1930s, there was a woman named Edith Starr Miller who wrote a book called Occult Theocracy. And like Cooper, Miller saw communism and other left-leaning political stances as a threat. And like Cooper, Miller saw these different and disparate groups as part of a larger plot going back to ancient times and connected to the present day people by threads that stretch for millennia. Cooper didn't come up with that. Edith Starr Miller did. Did Cooper read Edith Starr Miller and just copy the ideas? Yeah, probably. Actually, I'm I'm pretty sure he did. But much of Cooper's significance isn't based on his secret society talk or his esoteric symbolism talk. It's on his connection of the paranormal and the global conspiratorial with more political conspiracies at the time, and especially some aspects of right-wing, right-wing rather extremism in the 1990s, like his involvement in the militia movement, whether the militia movement wanted him or not, and other related fields such as the so-called tax protest movement. He closes Majesty 12 with this call to action for his readers. Seek out and join a lawful militia, or form one in your area. If you wish to remain free, you will have to fight for it. Not because we want to fight, or you want to fight, but because the traitors will give us no choice in the matter. There will be either a revolution, the Marxist choice, or there will be a serious attempt to restore constitutional Republican government under law, the Patriots' choice. In any event, there will be war between the citizens of the United States of America and the Marxist minions of the subversive corporate United States New World Odor. Nope. New World Odor was not me flubbing a line. It was Cooper thinking he was witty. Cooper's views of state sovereignty over the federal government and the illegitimate nature of the income tax was an issue with which he became closely associated at the end of his life. Cooper and his wife were under investigation from about 1998, 1999 on for failure to file income tax returns. Cooper argued, as have others who questioned the authority of the federal government to collect an income tax, that the federal government only has power to tax within its lawful jurisdiction, and that, quote, this is Cooper, the United States has no jurisdiction or venue within the territorial boundaries of the state of Arizona except over land that was ceded to the United States by the state legislature. He further explains in Majesty 12, The IRS, BATF, and Secret Service have no lawful authority or jurisdiction over state citizens or in the several states of the Union. The terrible truth is that any citizen residing in the territorial boundary of any Union state who files and pays the bogus so-called income tax is voluntarily contributing to the elimination of the middle class and opposition to socialism and the ultimate destruction of the United States of America. In addition, it might disturb you to know that the new Soviet-style IRS headquarters in the federal building at New Carrollton, Maryland, is, in fact, an Illuminati temple. It does kind of disturbed me to know that. In the summer of 1998, Cooper, after meeting with U.S. Marshals about the charges, issued a series of public statements on his website and through his shortwave radio program. He said that despite the threat of arrest, he and his wife Annie would not appear in court to answer a summons because the court had no jurisdiction on them because they were citizens of Arizona and not citizens of the so-called corporate United States of America. 
quote, we will stand and fight their Gestapo with all the means at our disposal, any assault which may be mounted upon our property or upon us, end quote. These statements were pretty grim and paranoid. And in a post on his website, um, Cooper made this announcement. Our children will remain with us. They are not shields, as our enemies will claim, any more than children have been shields for families which have been attacked by despotism throughout history. Allowing our children to disappear into the immoral and destructive government child care and foster home industry run by the mind-controlling bogus psychology profession only to be abused and sexually assaulted for many years is a fate worse than death, and we will simply not allow such a thing to happen to our precious little girls. The references to mind control echo other extreme interpretations of long-deactivated government psychological experimentation that was part and parcel of conspiracy narrative in the mid to late 1990s and to the present. On the website, Cooper also placed this warning. Warning. Any attempt by the federal government or anyone else to execute the unconstitutional and unlawful arrest warrants issued by Judge Irwin will be met with armed resistance. Any person who attempts to kidnap our children will be shot upon discovery. We are formed as the constitutional and lawful unorganized militia of the state of Arizona and the United States of America. By invading the sovereign jurisdiction of the state of Arizona to attack the citizens of the state of Arizona, the United States has declared war upon the citizens of the several states of the Union. Therefore, a state of war exists between the citizens of the Union states and the corporate United States. Interestingly, examining the FBI files on Cooper that have been made public in the last few years, it certainly appears that Cooper's wife and children were not actually with him, um, at least part of the time he claimed they were all in their home. They had left or fled, more likely, to California. And not wanting to precipitate an incident which might turn into another Ruby Ridge or Waco, and, and actually prompted by policy changes implemented in response to those events, federal law enforcement agencies were very cautious and took a lot of time in executing any arrest warrants on Cooper. Uh, In fact, they never really did serve those tax arrest warrants, really. But on November 6th, 2001, Apache County, Arizona sheriff's deputies attempted to serve a warrant on Cooper related to local assault charges, not related to the tax issues. And during the confrontation, Cooper shot a deputy in the head and was, in turn, killed when law enforcement officers returned fire. In an L.A. Times story, uh, Cooper's death was summarized as the coda to years of anti-government activism, inciting his long-pending tax evasion charges and quoting a representative from the U.S. Marshal Service who said Cooper had, quote, vowed he would not be taken alive. Cooper's death triggered a wave of suspicion within the conspiracy community, and much of it centered on Cooper's so-called prediction on a June 28, 2001 radio broadcast that there would likely be some sort of manufactured terrorist attack on the United States and that Osama bin Laden would be implicated in it. This summary by a conspiracy-oriented website over a dozen years later is typical of reactions to Cooper's death. They said, quote, Many believe that Cooper was killed because of the things he says here, disclosing highly sensitive information and particularly forewarning listeners to disregard any connection to Osama bin Laden should a future attack on U.S. soil occur, end quote. And this was the angle played up in the 2005 documentary, The Hour of Our Time, The Legacy of William Cooper. This film, which is basically just sort of this hagiographic, you know, story of this wonderful sainted man, presents a streamlined version of his work, uh, pretty much eliminating 
all trace of his UFO involvement and concentrating on the political conspiracies and, and, and painting Cooper and his associates as hardworking truth seekers. As presented by the documentary, the circumstances around his death, uh, recounted by fellow militia members and his radio co-host, all sounds like some combination of a horrible misunderstanding and an actual intentional assassination. Their image is of a guy who was simply minding his own business, which runs counter to the warnings and declaration of war Cooper put on his website. And in summing up his legacy, one of his friends claimed that, quote, probably due to the life and circumstances of research he was involved in and what he was exposing, I have no doubt he is in a much better place. I just recently reread Dante's Paradiso, and I am pretty sure that one of the heavenly realms was reserved for people who repurposed old conspiracy theories for their own, uh, for their own use. Cooper's legacy in the UFO field is pretty unambiguous. If you look around at what serious researchers of the UFO field, of the phenomenon, and of the field itself had said, there's pretty much a consensus that Cooper was a loud-mouthed, obnoxious, know-nothing who took other ideas and used them as his own, and then when people pointed that out, got out of the field and went crazy with his political conspiracy theories. Now, at the same time, enough time has passed, 17 years since his death, almost, 17 years this year, in November, that school-age kids, teenagers, college kids, people who are the age I was when I got into this, are going to be out there on the internet and they're going to find information about Bill Cooper. And what they find might be shows like this, or they might be posts by some of the senior members of the UFO research community that set them straight about Bill Cooper, or it might be articles like this. Former Navy officer spills the beans about top secret groups and they're packed with extraterrestrials. A former Navy officer who couldn't endure keeping his mouth shut had paid the ultimate price for disclosing the hidden reality of top-secret governmental affairs, organizations, UFOs, and captured extraterrestrial beings. Numerous people occupying positions of power live with a shallow consciousness and eventually seek to escape from this prison of the mind. Some may seek the fast way out, attempting suicide, but others will seek to bring into the open the concealed reality they were once part of. In such cases, these whistleblowers will be labeled as either delirious and absurd, or will sooner or later be silenced or put to their final rest. Such is the case of Milton William Cooper, former member of the intelligence briefing team of the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet. In his search for redemption and truth, he paid the ultimate price after disclosing information about top-secret governmental programs, institutions, extraterrestrials, and UFOs. The article then gives a lengthy rundown of Cooper's internet posts and what he had divulged back in 1987, 88, 89, into the early 90s with Behold a Pale Horse. And it also explains how he met his death. Cooper was lucky enough to live to tell the tale, at least for a while, but he was eventually murdered on November 5th, 2001, inside his house in Arizona. The ones who had delivered this deadly message were part of the Apache County Sheriff Department. Two things. First, I think that's the first time I've ever seen Sheriff's Department spelled as Sheriff Singular Department. The other interesting thing, and I think, honestly, the more interesting thing than my pickiness over 
spelling and plurals is the fact that this article was written in March of 2017, long after Cooper himself had denounced the UFO field as ridiculous and misinformational and disinformational, and even acknowledging that he'd been playing a part in that unwittingly. People ignore that. This article ignored that and jumped right to Cooper told us all about the aliens, dot, dot, dot. Cooper was murdered. Interestingly, and I think what would just gall William Cooper if he were to read that story today. Actually, he might be. He's in a better place, so I assume he has the internet, right? What would absolutely enrage him is the fact that this article said almost nothing about his political ideas. It was all about ufology, and that's why he was killed, not because he was standing up to the secret government, not because he was pushing back at the unconstitutional IRS, no. It's because he was a flying saucer whistleblower. In the end, that might be the greatest thing that you will hear this week. Bill Cooper was an angry man. Bill Cooper was also a charlatan. Bill Cooper knew how to manipulate believers into following his teachings, whether they were flying saucer teachings or whether they were political teachings. He had some devotees in both areas. But in the end, for Bill Cooper, the saucer life was a means to an end. That end, despite his claims, was much less about the salvation of the Republic than it was about the promotion of his own ego. Cooper's Behold a Pale Horse is available on the HourOfTheTime.com website as a free download. I, uh, I can't re- recommend paying any money for it, so if you can find a legit way to get it for free, I'd recommend that. I don't have ads on the show, but I cover Cooper extensively in my book, Conspiracy Theories, which was useful to revisit as I produced this episode. And for those of you who have read it, I hope it wasn't too repetitious. You can find a link to where you can buy the book on Amazon on the website. In our next encounter, we continue our flashback to the 90s with the first season of The X-Files and how it both fed off of and fueled the collective saucer life during the 1990s. If you want some homework to do, watch these episodes before the, sometime during the next 10 days. The Pilot, Deep Throat, Fallen Angel, EBE, and The Erlenmeyer Flask. You can check out the archives at saucerlife.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. Or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. Ratings and reviews on iTunes and other platforms are always appreciated, and we do thank those of you who've already done so. The Saucer Life was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and also featured the voice talents of Roberta Evangeline Straith and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.